For the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you today from Mar Vista, Los Angeles, California, speaking with Jim Ruland. He is many things. He's the author of the short story collection Big Lonesome. He's a columnist for uh, Razor Cake, as well as the San Diego City Beat. He is the, well, you might know him. If you're, if you're really into what he's done, you may know him as the author of the Dispatches from an Indian Casino column in McSweeney's under the androgynous uh, pseudonym Leslie McDonald. But he's got a new book out called Forest of Fortune, set in an Indian casino. The titular forest is a part of that casino. Tell me, Jim, if you wrote a book called Indian Casinos I Have Known, how long would that book be? Oh, wow. Well, I've become a student of Indian casinos, having worked in one and then deciding pretty early on that I have to write about this. So it became kind of a professional interest. Was there like an image? Was there an encounter at an Indian casino that really sealed the deal on you writing about it? Like, do you have a memory of the moment or was it just an instinct that develops? Um, I don't really know how accurately I can answer that question. I mean, it's strangeness presented itself to me right away. I mean, I should say that I come from a gambling family, a gambling culture. Uh, my father had owned uh, a racehorse or was a part owner of a racehorse in Charlestown Raceways in West Virginia. So we're talking about like part owner of a five or six thousand dollar claiming racehorse. Nothing, nothing major here, but you know, we'd got going Still more than I've owned horsewise. I'll tell you. Well, you know what? You know, we'd been in to the track. We go to the track a lot. My my brother still does and takes an interest in that. And uh, you know, I did get to stand in the winner's circle one time. And you know, I'm a big junkie for fantasy baseball and fantasy football, and I like wagering on on sports mostly. So going into a casino, I thought was like quote-unquote cool job right but uh little did i know how <laughs> i was pretty naive how was it seriously uncool yeah it was pretty horrible mm. for all the reasons that you would expect you know that you know um you know there's an expression that people that like hot dogs and the law shouldn't watch either being made <laughs> and you know if you have a kind of fascination with casinos good Going to one every day is your job, and seeing the people uh, on the floor day after day after day will will kind of uh, bruise your soul a little bit. Casinos often get talked about as places of desperation, and it's true in Forest of Fortune, even for the main character, one of the main characters who, who becomes a casino employee. He is driven away from Los Angeles to the outskirts of San Diego understates it, way east of San Diego to seek employment. I mean, is anybody is anybody coming to this casino with a thunderclap in a non-desperate fashion? I think so. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, you know, the I think the bread and butter of these Indian casinos, well, I mean, the bread and butter is all, are always the whales. So that's any kind of gambling establishment. But the people who come in yeah, most frequently are usually tend to be housewives, women in their 30s. Those are, those are the people that your your target audience, 30s and the mid 30s and above. And um, you know, not so much the idea of these you know people that you know crawl in from someplace <laughs> in the desert. But we right. did have quite a bit of that too. You know, really? I mean, I, I'm thinking of a milder form of desperation. Some of these ladies have to be desperate for entertainment, right? entertainment attention especially when you get to the older people i mean they just you know i I think it really is meaningful for for people especially uh, people of other generations people getting older or people who don't have much contact with people to go into a place and be recognized whether that's 7-eleven or an indian casino there's this sense i mean you've written about it when you wrote about your time and working in the indian casino and writing this novel and reading this novel you know you get the sense of a casino as a supernatural place not just because well this is an Indian casino and there's the whole Indian land thing Indian burial ground and so on and so forth not just supernatural because there's a supernatural element you could say to this book but they're supernatural they feel supernatural because you never quite know where you are if you just walk into one and you know you're being watched as well by 
a, a scheme of surveillance that feels supernatural. I mean, that's the, a lot. A lot about a casino can feel supernatural, can't it? I think you hit it right on the head. All those things were especially true in the place that I worked, which was, a, you know, obviously a huge influence and inspiration. Um, although the like the location and the physical description, you know, can probably, you know, are really you can pin those on different other casinos, but. Absolutely. Uh, you know, where I worked started out as a, a bingo hall, and then turned into a card room, and then they brought in these machines. Sort of an organic growth. Yeah, and then the then they realized, oh, like these these are the, the machines have coins. We need stronger floors, and I'm like, oh no, we don't, because they don't have coins anymore. So it was this really chaotic growth. It wasn't like this, you know. Um, it's kind of like anything that you would it's it's always comforting to think that there's you know someone's looking out for you and even the flip side of that that there's one person or one thing that's screwing you over even it's horrible to feel that way it's still comforting to think that it's one person and not some this chaos that you're caught up in this is the seat of conspiracy theories right people want to believe you know they'd rather believe that the government pulled off 9-11 because all the other explanations are too messy. Right. And I think Thomas Pynchon does this beautifully, this whole, he's always referencing uh, Sax Romer's Dr. Fu Manchu, that how comforting it is to believe that there's this supernatural being that with a puff of purple smoke could just appear and wreck your life and then disappear and that you really have no agency over that. When really, uh, you do. And it's a whole mindless number of factors and, and when even when you know better when you sit down at a machine and things start to go your way you start this idea of luck just kind of appears in your brain like oh I, this machine likes me this machine is hot this is my lucky day you know and uh, it, it's it's kind of ingrained in us I think we're going to we're going to see patterns no matter what right yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, we, I mean, that's we're going to see stories for sure, right? And uh, and, I, and it's really hard to make um, stories out of chance and randomness and numbers, <laughs> which I think is why baseball is so fascinating because that's all it is is numbers, and why religion is so compelling because there's you know there's there's meaning to all this meaninglessness. A couple of the other main characters in Forest of Fortune are trying to impose order on chaos, the chaos of the machines they gamble on, because they're they're gambling every day. They're career gamblers. What is the line between a career gambler and a gambling addict? Well, that's a really that's tough to know. Um, is that a viable uh, pursuit? A career gambler? Can you theoretically make a living if you're there every day? Well, I don't see how you could with um, with slot machines, right. uh, because they are they are so random and the odds are so, are stacked against you. Um, I mean, I suppose that if you played long enough and did get lucky and then stopped, you could do that, or you got lucky and you won these ancillary prizes that casinos are always coming up with. You know, like. Um, Let's say you know they have a promotion where they're giving a car away every week in a random drawing, but that you earn tickets or chances to opportunities to play with your play. That means the high rollers are all going to get those tickets. The people who spend the most money and the most time on the machines, whatever that combination is in the algorithm, will get you the most tickets. So you can have these events, and you'll have. You know, ten people every week trying to win a new car, and five or six or seven of them will be the same people every time. <laughs> and even in a span of a week, you might have—I mean, a month—you might have the same guy win more than right. once. You know, and it happens. Right. It shows up in the book this sense of—not even a sense—this reality that casinos know—they know what people are doing when they enter those doors pretty well. They track them quite closely, and it's a strange sense in which. You know, you talk again about an Indian casino, Indian land. This is a realm of, like, people have superstitions when they come to a place like that. But the superstition is borne out by almost technology now, because technology has enabled this astonishing degree of 
of how to even put it like omniscience on the casino's part not just watching right but knowing everything absolutely so you if you walk into the casino and say okay if i play long enough something good will happen to me and maybe you lose but you've been there for three hours and you've spent however much money you brought and something good does happen you get a uh, a free milkshake or (laughs) someone brings a uh, literally like a cookie yes. or you get your dinner comp or you get your a hotel stay the next time you come or mm-hmm. so in the back of your mind you don't want to feel like a loser you don't want to be realistic about what's just happened mm-hmm. you want to say oh um, yes something good happened I, I am a winner this this Indian casino thunderclap and forest of fortune is it's miles and miles out of San Diego. About how far would you place it from San Diego? Well, I have it in the between the deserts and the mountains. Um, so, in the book, it's uh, it's not that far. It's a short hour-long bus ride for um, for Pemberton, who goes back and forth to the beach, um, so he can have his fun. But uh, it would actually be. Uh, a little bit further east than that, or I should say, further. That's where the casinos are, farther east. Well, no, it just um, casinos are always t- on reservations, and reservations are in out of the way places because that's the land the government didn't want. With Thunderclap, what happened is that they were ceded a parcel of land, and so they were they were lucky that it happened to be up by a main road. They got a bit closer than most Indian casinos do. Right, and and now we see that in uh, places like you know, if you drive, you know, from say, I don't know, San Diego to New Mexico, you'll see a number of casinos that tribes now taking advantage of their proximity to the interstate eight. Right, you'll see on the on the billboards they'll tell you exactly where to get off to get right. to this and casino. They'll mislead you a little bit. It'll be next exit, you know, but you oh, you might have to go windy roads. Mm-hmm. They don't know. want you to miss it. Right, mm-hmm. and so you know you might see one or two or three signs for competing casinos because. You know. What is the difference between an Indian casino down in the San Diego area and one up here, or for that matter, anywhere else? I mean, is this is an Indian casino an Indian casino? Um, yes and no, and that's one of the things that's so fascinating about it. And that there's, let's say, uh, there's, I think there's 566, 560 tribes with casinos, and they all have their own story to tell. And s- some casinos r- really do uh, make the story part of the visitor's experience. Uh, some people really uh, don't invest don't invest in that part at all. Um, so there's this sense that, you know, you can walk into one casino and you get a very specific story. You walk in another and one symbol is as good as the next, you know. Or um, there, there might be different symbols, there might be things, but they're not explained. So if you walk around, they, yeah, they all, it's a casino. There are, there's, a, there's a pervasive sameness to the yes. experience. But if you look around, you walk around, you'll, you'll see little things that are different. And um, those things are, are very fascinating to me. There's definitely uh, a southwestern style, which is all very. There'll be like a Puebla style, and then as you move into Arizona, that gets even more distinct. You'll see, you know, more. You know, I mean, you already see tons of cocopelli and coyote <laughs> with even more cocopelli. Yeah, with coyote with a bandana tied around its neck and. <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs> when you began writing this McSweeney's column, Dispatches from an Indian Casino, under Leslie McDonald, how long had you been fictionally writing about Indian casinos at that point? How long had you been working on this novel? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. But that, you were working on it, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the timeline is, is that uh, my first... I was there for about five plus years, and for the first two and a half years, I was working on. For the first two years, I was working on another project, and which had a very poor result. And when, as a result, meaning that my agent invited me to explore some other opportunities. So I was like, kind of devastated by that. And uh, it had been a historical project, and I was like really tired of living in the past and. 
so I wanted to write about something immediate, and that meant where I went to work every day. I was just like, I got to write about this. I'm here. I'm not going to be here that much longer. Ha ha ha. I'm going to write write about this. And if I get you know stuck, I don't got to. I don't have to go to the library or a history book or online. I just walk the floor, and everything will be revealed to me. And you'll be getting paid while you do that. So hey, right. Um, but then a funny thing, I did that. I mean, I knocked out the first draft really, really fast. And then um, and then I got uh, Queen and Sober. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, before that, you know, with Pris- before that I had, you know, I hit bottom. So the whole time while, while I was working there, I was navigating this, you know, very dark period of my own life, which, mm-hmm. I, which makes the book somewhat autobiographical in terms of Pemberton's um, story. How much, how much self-awareness does Pemberton have at the beginning of his problem? None. (laughs) None. He's like, I mean, he, I mean, this is a guy who can't catch a break, even though he's creating all of these bad problems. I mean, it's very easy for someone in Pemberton's situation to say, man, this, I really hope I come out from under this black cloud soon even though he's the one, uh, he's the chief rainmaker. But uh, to, go, to go back to the question before that, um, I was revising, you know, I was, I guess it had been my third year there. I was queen and sober. I was really keen on selling it and was revising the book. I was working with a group every week. And along with that, some things started to happen. Like I won a short story contest for a, f- a first chapter. And I won this dispatches contest and was cranking out these these things. You have proven you're quite good at winning contests. It's it's true. It's a little uncanny, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you won a twenty five grand, was it, for Reader's Digest? Uh, from Reader's Digest for a hundred fifty word story, was that? It was short, and it was I enjoyed it, but it was also yeah. People, I'm sure other writers will kind of grumble when they hear that you won twenty five grand. From I was just surprised readers digest still was a going concern personally, let alone that they were giving out twenty five grand. Well, yeah, that's what everybody says. When, I mean, yeah. it was one of those things where I didn't really know readers digest was. Yeah, I know. You know, you always like, think it died with your grandparents. Right, exactly. But they were one of the first people to jump on the digital platform, so they have like a bazillion iPad subscribers. And for a while, they had some really dynamic stuff. I mean, they there was a photo shoot associated with winning that contest, and really? and I and I got to explore a little bit where you know some of the photography they, that they published was really extraordinary. Mm. And and then of course it was kind of like you know the elephant in the room. Like everywhere I went, there was Reader's Digest. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, you know, you won some contests, and this yeah. this what? How does this fit into the the narrative of this book? taking its form the McSweeney's one it's I mean well probably because it in retrospect it I see that I was still so afraid Mm. that even though I was sober and I wasn't you know I had moved out from under my own black cloud that I really hadn't I was still living a very fear-based life Mm. this whole I mean, obviously, you don't want to write about your job and publish it online and say, ah, and not expect, you know, for some repercussions. But yeah. I was seriously afraid that someone was going to find out. Even with the pseudonym and everything? Yeah. And, I, and so it, was, it became this very weird experience where I wrote these things and then felt like I couldn't tell anybody. Right. I mean, looking back, would would a, a casino actually care about a column like this? Would they think they were somehow going to be damaged by it? No, I, I really don't think so. Um, it's just, you know, you know, no disrespect to McSweeney's. I mean, I'm sure far more people read McSweeney's than have read my book. But um, that's still just a really small drop in the bucket compared to people that go to casinos. You know, and not a huge overlap, I would think, between the McSweeney's audience and the casino audience. Or is there? And did you not realize there was? That's what no, I'm curious. I, I don't think there was okay. any any overlap at all. The, you know. Although some casinos, you know, the when the LA Times reviewed my book, uh, that review popped up on a on a fair number of online forums in different Indian casinos, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, these are Indian casino forums, casino forums, message boards, and things like that. Nothing like not official newsletters and publications, but you know, how did? How did writing this column, the dispatches from an Indian casino column, 
me, how did it prepare you to use the casino as a setting, writing non-fictionally about casinos? You know, I don't know, because so much of the heavy lifting had been done. I see. But one of my weaknesses in the novel, in novel writing in general, is... Uh, I think is exposition. Ah, yes. It's like I get, I get readers into a scene, and then I figure like, okay, you're there. You know, you know where you are, nice. and and now I'm going to have my fun with these characters. They're going to do these things, and there was um, one uh, writing instructor that I worked with, and she was always writing in the margins. You know, keep the world alive. You know, keep alive. keep reminding us where we are. You know, and so that was really good, and. A lot of my dispatches would come out of just everyday observances, especially things that I knew was never going to go into the book. Like one day we had a, uh, um, there was a, I don't think it was, it was a bomb scare, but it wasn't really a bomb scare so much it was a hyper vigilant reaction to a, a shooting at another casino. And so they herded us all out of the, out of, in, into this place. It was around Christmas time and, and it became kind of a, a, a party. Mm, outside, where you had all been heard. Well, we, we actually went into like the uh, education offices, but it was a little weird because they evacuated the uh, um, the management mm. and the office personnel, but not the people on the floor, <laughs> yes. and certainly not the customers. Right, right, right. They kept the front of the house going in any case exactly back of house personnel was like uh, you might want to slip out now <laughs> yes how much have you heard of the unseen unseen to customers part of a casino used in fiction I feel like this is the first I've encountered the the employees only areas used as a setting well there's a um, a whole bunch of crime fiction and crime writing that I'm really not well versed in. There there's some things that I like and they're they're um, yeah, there's a there's just a lot I don't know about and I think it's a much wider community. I'm starting to get to know that community uh, more. But um, so I really am not the best person to ask. I know there have it been exists, Yeah, I know there have been some novels set in casinos, but I think they tend to be like um, I don't see how there couldn't be because there's so many casinos now and there's so much money moving through there. And uh, there are so many shady characters who run these thing operations. It's almost a byword for a shady character run operation, a casino. You don't expect anything else. No, well, that's that's a misnomer. I would say that like most of them are totally legit and on the level, but it's a little bit like boxing and that the opportunity for... Uh, corruption is there, and it's so enticing. So even when the people are um, do get in trouble, it's usually for things like accepting bribes, for like you know you run a if you run a casino, well you're gonna, there's a lot of things you need. You need like a shitload of tablecloths, yes. a lot of chairs, a lot of carpet. You know, so hey, you know, you know, a little kickback from the carpet company, and you know that kind of thing. And, um, I haven't read too many stories of like you know like the chairman of a tribe backing a Hummer up to the vault kind of thing, yes. nothing that cartoonish. But um, while I was writing the book, I had a half dozen or so Google alerts for set up for different casinos that just couldn't seem to stay out of trouble. Really, it was always the same ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, just at least during that one window of time and. Uh, I mean, we're talking like running gun battles with local sheriffs to, um, you know, you know, you know, people being indicted. And, but I do want to emphasize that it's like it's, it's it's pretty legit. I mean, it's there's it's really hard to get away with with anything. It's a world people don't know that well. I mean, in any fiction, I'm always I'm always glad to get exposed to a world like that, but. You know, there's a world a lot of readers don't know as well, which is a world you're a part of, which is the, I guess we could say the broader Southern California literary world. I mean, you're the host of Vermin on the Mount, a reading series been going on a decade now. Is it more than a decade? About a decade? Ten years. Ten years. In Los Angeles, in San Diego, where you live now, elsewhere as well. The first one I went to was actually in Washington, D.C., of all places. Yes, and uh, tell me, what, what made you 
get interested in starting a reading series like that? Well, I was one of these guys that would complain and say, ah, there's no literary scene in Los Angeles, you know. So did you start saying that as soon as you came to Los Angeles, whenever that was? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I knew that um, the, the different schools and universities, you know, would spend an incredible amount of money to bring writers to their school and then not tell anybody. Oh, sure. And, which they still do. <laughs> and, um, but there wasn't this kind of overarching culture. And then I found out how wrong I was that there was... I mean, I was right. There wasn't a scene. There were a million little scenes. Right. That's the nature of Los Angeles itself. There's no A anything. There's just a plurality of everything. But I feel like there are literary culture in LA has exploded in the last three or four years really? and that there's um, there weren't too many series like Vermin on the Mount when I started but there are can't say that anymore what did you then discover the Los Angeles or Southern California literary world was from doing these from doing Vermin on the Mount I mean or were you sort of forging a lot of it in that way no I don't think I was really forging anything it, it was an education for me to get outside of my circle, mm. to increase my awareness of what other people were doing. Mm. And, um, and then I also realized it was a way to get access to things that I wanted to know more about. Mm. I mean, I've been writing for punk rock zines right. the whole, you know, since the mid-90s, and it was always the, the zine ethos is, you know, write about what you love. And so that zine gives you access to the things that you love. And I kind of brought that to Vermin on the Mount. I wasn't really interested in, you know, um, stirring the pot or starting feuds or... Oh, oh they start on their own. Yeah, they do. I'm sorry. But, but you know what I'm saying. I wasn't... It was... You know, I just wanted it to be about things that I love, but I also wanted to challenge myself to, you know, to, to find, find cool stuff. I mean, that, that's important. And what literarily to you counts as cool stuff? You know, it was pretty narrow, I think, when I first started. But when I first, I, when I first came to L.A., I lived in L.A. for a year after I was an undergraduate, and I worked in a coffee shop, and I kind of fell into co-hosting a reading series called... Uh, Skinny Leonard's free verse. It was actually an open mic. Mm. It was right next to a, a recording studio, and we would have our, you know, our early nineties. Yeah, I mean early nineties. You couldn't really call them hipster kids, but <laughs> you know, alternative kids, art school people, high school kids, you know, doing all the things that you know people do, young people do in a coffee shop. Mm. But Angelo Moore from Fishbone. Mm-hmm. Would would pop in and he would see what we were doing, wow. and I mean this is an era of like when a lot of people are imitating like Henry Rollins mm-hmm. and things of like it's spoken word right. you know, that culture spoken right before it became you know too before it became I don't want to say a joke because somewhat sure. disrespectful but before it became cliche before now when I say spoken word you can hear what that sounds like in your head before that happened before Lollapalooza brought it all over the United States and kind of before it was defined right maybe that's a good way to put it but anyway Angela Moore would come in and basically just blow our minds with how someone really performs and he got to the point where it was all kind of premeditated, where he knew what night we were doing things, and he would plan his entry for when there was no one on the mic, because there was only a handful of people that would come to these things. And he would start his performance as he walked through the door. And it kind of changed our idea of what poetry, performance, prose, because it was all of these things, but yet it wasn't any of them. So it was... That was very exciting. So I kind of got a sense that, you know, whatever, that something was cool was going to be new, but it could come from anywhere, any discipline. There's a sense here, I think, I feel like that's almost, I don't know if I want to say Los Angeles sensibility, but it seems like that's distinctively Californian, that idea that your stuff can come from anywhere at all, and no one's going to tell you either. 
Well, there's a performative aspect too, because here in California, um, especially in Los Angeles, you're going to meet singers, you're going to meet songwriters, you know, you're going to meet actors. Oh Lord, are you going to meet actors? And um, and there's a lot you can learn from them. I mean, you can if you have a friend who's an actor and they read your poem or your story back to you, uh, you'll you can learn quite a bit. So I think. Um, California has that going for it. There's a lot of people who can reflect things back to you in ways you didn't expect. We'd say that. And Los Angeles has always been a, uh, a brain drain of sorts for creative talent. You know, people come here from all over to, you know, to, to start their metal band sure. or to write their screenplay, to be an actor, to, um, you know, it's to play. And because I was living in the Valley in North Hollywood, it was a place where people were all were not ashamed to say, "Yeah, I move furniture," but let me tell you what I really want to do. Right. Whereas in Hollywood, you might get, "I'm an actor," and then get a little dodgy about what they really do for a living. Sure. It was kind of a more blue collar, but still very creatively ambitious environment. Now, when you were writing for Razor Cake, when you were writing punk rock interviews, was fiction also a goal in your mind? Like. But this isn't. This is one kind of writing I do. But here's this other kind of writing I'm going to also be doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, my goal has been to be a novelist my entire writing career, whatever that means. But that was always the aspiration. Mm. Even when I was writing screenplays, um, they were just ways. They seemed like a way to short circuit the. Uh, the story writing process like hey i can write a, a story from with a beginning middle and end and it's twelve thousand words i don't right how I, is this possible yeah i can figure out if it works or not in a, in a month rather than two years right 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 it's the time investment is lower and you do get a sense of i mean would this i always wonder about the translatability this is something people think of a lot in Los Angeles, whether they work in film or whether they're novelists, the translatability of the story in a novel to the screenplay form or back and forth. People always want their novels optioned or sometimes writers want to uh, be going on these parallel tracks where it's I write screenplays, but then I also write novels. I mean, yeah. is it does a story is a story a story in that sense? Like it's going if it works in a novel, it's going to work uh, as a screenplay. It's going to work as a film and the other way around as well. I don't know. I, I really don't know how to answer that. I've never really had much contact with the industry. I mean, I say write screenplays, but I just mean like in, um, you, you know, as some person alone. Yeah. <laughs> but you know if a story's functional in a screenplay or not, right? Not always. I wrote a lot of bad screenplays, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I also... You know, I got my undergraduate degree and I fell in love with literature, but it really didn't prepare me at all for writing fiction. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started reading uh, crime novels that I realized, like, wow, here we go. Here's a story. Here's style and action and dialogue and plot. You know, this is instructive. And so I started doing that, and it was that was also around the time when you know, uh, there was a great resurgence in interest in crime movies thanks to Quentin Tarantino and a, a lot of the pulp fi fiction from the 30s and 40s and then some of the fiction out of the 60s and 70s was being optioned and remade. So it started to feel like, yeah, these stories were alive, but a, a way that they were engines that a, an artist could put their own stamp on for sty stylistically. So that's what interested me. Um, I eventually just stopped writing screenplays because I, you know, I was surrounded by these people who were like, had this desire, who woke up every morning saying, "I am gonna make it as a screenwriter." Yes, yeah, so and they would probably say that to the mirror yes. in the morning. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that wasn't me, you know. I was just kind of dicking around. Oh, and, sure. <laughs> you know, um, so I basically stopped. Right. It's. Interesting you mentioned crime novels, because Forest of Fortune seems to me to have the darkness of a crime novel in a lot of ways, without crime tropes. I mean, do you think of it as a dark novel at all? Oh, I do. Mm. Uh, but I also think of it as a funny novel. Sure. I, I think sometimes in interviews, 
I've been a little bit too, or other times talking about, I've been too eager to emphasize the autobiographical nature and all the sorrow and suffering that the author had to go through to be able to bring this story to you. Sure. But it's actually very funny, too. Yeah, it's true. I mean, were you thinking comedically at all when writing, or did it just turn out funny? No, it, it, I was striving for humor. Mm. Uh, there was something about Pemberton that I found very funny. Uh, Alice, not so much, but Pemberton, his his unnecessary formality seemed like a very rich uh, opportunity for humor. It's true, yes. Pemberton dresses a little bit nicer than everybody else working at the Indian Casino, and he gets, uh, you know, he gets some guff for it. And he's he's never Pemberton is a character never quite in the right context, isn't he? Right, right. And what's funny is that his his dress is actually shabbier than everyone else. Right. But it looks on the surface nicer, and the so form, people, the form is nicer. Yeah. So people judge him for that. And um, yeah, but he's a Los Angeles ad guy, and right. you'd think he was displaced at this Indian casino, but it seems like in the world of advertising, he was also never quite a great fit. There, there's certainly that, but. Um, it's funny. I think advertising, you know, that's been my bread and butter for my most of my adult life. When I worked at the casino, I worked in the marketing department. I was not a blackjack dealer, although everybody would ask me at least once a week if that's what I did, which is why I put it in the book. Because when I go out on tour, people ask me if I was a blackjack dealer. I, I don't know what. Maybe I just looked like one. Um, what does a blackjack dealer look like? Me, apparently. Sure. So maybe, <laughs> we'll go with that. maybe it's something I can fall back on, although I'd have to brush up on my math, I think. <laughs> I was going to... I, I should note here for the listener, we mentioned, we, we've mentioned that there are a few main characters here, and I think they'll maybe get the idea that there are more than there are that the book is maybe more confusing than it is and as i understand it i mean you've you narrowed down from a book with uh with even more with even more threads going on right we you know we talk about pemberton we talk about we've we've mentioned alice you know we've mentioned these threads but it was it was more complicated to begin with right this novel yes yeah it was there was um there's three main characters, and I kind of always envisioned it as each of the character being equally important. Um, but that would change from time to time. You know, for a while, Pemberton was, became the the main character, which seems fairly obvious since he's the most autobiographical. But then Alice really kind of she I think is the um, she's a Native American woman with epilepsy and. But she's not from the tribe where at the casino where she works. She's from another tribe, so she's she's an outsider that everybody assumes is an insider, <laughs> and so she's kind of the the uh, the moral compass of the story. And she's also been dealt the shittiest hand, sure, of course, and handles it with the most grace. I feel so. Uh, she's I think she's probably uh, the character I'm most that is fond of in the sense and I feel the most protective towards and then we have Denise and Lupita the, the career gamblers as we've alluded to before and are they are they on the same plane as an Alice and a Pemberton do you? No I, I mean Denise is kind of a foil for Lupita and uh, you know I don't want to give away too much but when one of them disappears uh, it causes a lot of problems for the other but you know this is what what happens to people who leave, you know, who spend all their time at casinos? They, <laughs> they make bad decisions. And that's that was an observation drawn from your time at the casino. You could just, you could tell, this, they're spending a bit too much time here. Oh, yeah. This is not going to end well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you you would see this happen, and um, that was the thing that that would always, um, I would always, it was the thing that would make me the most sad, mm. is when you see people there over and over again. Not so much the people who are destitute, um, because hey, they're at a casino. They're living it up. Good, right. good for them. They're getting something for free occasionally. Maybe right. a tray with a drink gets brought by. Yeah, they're in this. They're in the air conditioning. They're they're in a nice place. You know, they they this. There nothing's bad is going to happen to them. Right. When it's they're a very in, controlled environment. Yeah, they're they're going to be okay as long as they're here. When they get when they get out on the street, who knows? Right. But. Some of the wealthier people that come in, I always wonder, well, who's at home? Mm. Do they are there kids? Are there siblings? Are there is there a spouse or a parent that's being neglected? That 
that would bother right. me. What's, who's losing out in this deal? Right. Mm. But um, by the same token, I've heard from so many people who have read the book who say, "Oh my God, my mom or my aunt loves the casino." I mean, it, I mean, casinos bring an enormous amount of pleasure. It's something for people who have fun and it's their entertainment, and they go every so often. It, it can be a fantastic way to blow off steam, but you know, when they shut off their phone and stop responding to messages and you can't find them, then that's not so great. Well, I mean, the, the, the words you use to describe that, you could apply the same thing to drinking, it seems like in Pemberton's case. You know, his, his girlfriend throws him out because he's not... He's, he is effectively shutting off his phone, not responding to her. I mean, there's... It, it seems to me the analogy is pretty straight between the entertainment of drinking and the entertainment of gambling and when those become problems. Do you see it as... Do you see them as comparable in that sense? Oh, absolutely, because they're both, like... There are ways where you could very... There are socially acceptable ways where you can go and be all by yourself. Mm. You can be around all these people, but you can indulge your disease, feed your addiction, and be completely and utterly alone. Mm. I wonder, you know, when do we... How do we know for sure anything we do alone and get pleasure from is not an addiction? When can we when can we feel safe we're not on the road to some kind of an addiction when there's a pleasurable thing we can do by ourselves? I mean, I include... Sure, I could include reading novels in this. There are people who maybe... There are people who get such pleasure from that, maybe they do let things slide in life right. just so they can read all day. It sounds innocuous. There could be cases where it isn't. I mean, when... When can we know we're not heading toward an addiction, I guess, is well, my question. A real uh, one that jumps immediately to mind is uh, video games. Sure. There are people who spend an enormous amount of time playing video games. They used to be watching TV, but now people who uh, people spend a lot more time playing video games than they, did, than they used to watch television. And uh, they've done studies of it, and... Um, I mean, I've had a glimpse of some of these studies from marketing perspectives and trying to get a handle on, well, how many hours? What's, what's a heavy user? And for some of these people, it's like a part-time or as much as a part-time or full-time job. I mean, they've got to earn those. They've got to unlock those achievements, I guess, you know? Well, it's very important, those yes. badges. But, <laughs> but I guess what it, to answer your question is, when is the addiction? It's, it's, um, it's when, it, when it starts to, when a source of pleasure starts to replace rather than enhance like pornography sure you know like you know pornography can be an excellent way to enhance you know pleasure but when it starts to replace um normal pleasure then you probably have a problem so then anything we really don't know anything we do alone could be it could be material for an addiction and we don't know till it's too late I think it has more to do with the, the individual than it does with the activity. Mm. Um, I mean, there are certain kinds of people whose lives are ruined by candy crush. Oh, sure. I thought you were going to say just by candy. There's problems with those people too, but candy crush is even more of a, more of a life destroyer these days, I would think. Not speaking from experience. Sure. But it, it, the, most, sort of the thing that seems the most minor and just unstimulating can really be just stimulating enough, right? Right, right, right. I mean, you know, absolutely. Now you have another, I guess I'll call it another track in your writing career as well, but uh, for example, you have, a, you have the book out with uh, the fellow from Deadliest Catch. What's, uh, what's, what's the name of that book again, Giving the Finger? That's right. It's called Giving the Finger, uh, and it's about, uh, it's the life story of Scott Campbell Jr., who is the captain of the Seabrook, which is one of the vessels featured on Deadliest Catch on Discovery Channel. And you are the you are the co-writer of this book. And how? I mean, I, I want to get a sense. I mean, people read these books and they know there's co-writers, but what? What kind of a? What kind of a job is it? How much of it is an extension of the days when you were? I mean, even even now, how much of it an extension of interviewing punk rockers for Razor Cake? You know, would this be? Well, I think that certainly helps, you know, having some interview skills in that you like, because really it's, it's, um, you get your material by interviewing your subject. And then you're going to sit and transcribe all that and try to make sense of all the material that you get. And 
so all my years of interviewing bands and you know for punk rock zines and also then writers you, you learn to ask better questions and you learn to like follow up you know just like ask a question and move on right. and it seems obvious but it's so easy you don't to, have a list well you know right. you do but you don't just move down it I mean you kind of <laughs> Yes. You kind of, you know, you in, it's a bit of interrogation. Someone can tell you a story, but you might ask for more details. And right. and in this kind of thing, for this kind of project, I mean, you want, you don't want summaries. You want scenes. You, right. you want feelings. You want setting. You, so mm-hmm. it can take a while. You might have to go back and back, you know, multiple times. So for this kind of project, it really is, it has comes down to um, interview skills and then what you do with that pile of words it's true and i want to emphasize here it seems to me that it's almost a more novelistic enterprise than people would think because as you say you have to make scenes you have to get stories out of this you have to you have to have a sense of voice i mean voice is is the most important thing in this is it not yes and so i would say it's a lot yes it's it's like novelistic, but it's a lot easier than that because I think you'll, a lot of people will probably told you that oh well once I got the character's voice I was off to the races. Well, they had a life of their own, right? Well, here you this is what you have. You have the voice. So once it's a matter of you learning it, and hopefully by doing the interviews, by listening to the interviews, by transcribing the interviews. Some people pay to have them transcribed, but I always like to transcribe it myself because it spends more time with the voice and figure out what material I can use and what I definitely can't. And it's that fidelity to voice. And once you get the voice down, then it really is a lot easier. It's just about, you know, constructing the story and getting what you need. What is, how would you describe the voice of Forest of Fortune, a third-person novel? Well, there's three points of view, so it has um, different voice. It has three different voices. It does. It's, it's something that... It's something that a reader thinks about on some level, I think, but not always, not always perfectly consciously that, that a novel written in the third person can indeed be in three voices. I mean, for those who haven't thought about it directly, how does that work? I would say in the construction of the novel, the voice was secondary in that I, I knew I wanted these distinct voices, these distinct personalities, because I wanted the casino... To, to be represented by these different ways, by someone who was intimate with it because they've been working there a while, someone who was intimate with, but from the point of view as someone who plays a lot of games, and then a naive person, someone who comes onto the scene for the first time, just like that old trick, you know. In every in every seagoing movie, you have the new guy on the boat and he gets a quick tour and you see this in military movies too so Pemberton is that new guy in the casino and so you see the reader sees the casino through his eyes because it's all new you get the light shown on the casino from three different angles then we say that that, exactly so voice was secondary in the sense but because I was dealing with a white Caucasian ad man a, a young female Native American and a middle-aged Latina voice was going to be different no matter what I did. Ultimately, you know, three, three, li- three angles of light aren't going to be enough for a place like this, right? You're not, this is not a fully graspable place, right? Right, and that's why there's this perhaps this where you're going to that we haven't talked about, how there's this overarching historical context and this voice that we get at the very beginning of the novel and then at certain uh, interstitial moments between the main sections that it's broken up into where the reader is presented with this voice they don't quite know what to make of other than it, it has a deep knowledge of the, of the not just the casino but of the land's history was that voice apart from the beginning of this novel, from the beginning of the writing of this novel? Yes, and that voice came probably the most out of, the least organically, and that it came out of uh, research that I had done. I, I knew that 
readers were going to bring a certain amount of expectations to a story that had supernatural overtones set on Indian land, and yes. I wanted to play with those and right. tweak them. Right. It's, it reminds me of, you know, the way that fans of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining can really get into theories about that film related to exactly that, the way that the movie is set on, you know, former Indian land, the way that it has a supernatural element. It just makes people spin these theories that seem elaborate and wild about what the movie has to say about the uh, collision between the Europeans and the, the Indians. Now, tell wh why are we so compelled by that kind of thing? I feel like we can even just point to the kids telling stories around a campfire. Like, when you say it takes place at a house on an Indian burial ground, you get all these images automatically. It's like people go wild with that kind of thing. I don't know if it's just Americans, but there is something that is... Why is there such sort of psychological richness for us with uh, when, we're on, when we're on Indian land? Well, guilt and shame, for one, but also because it was, they were such convenient... Uh, boogeyman in the in the 19th century, especially as you know the westward expansion and and uh, you know the people who were even though they were American born but recent settlers from Europe pushed across the continent and displaced the native peoples, you know, all throughout North America. That there was considerable risk, and it was really you're going into the unknown, and there was people who who may or may not push back. You know, it's the same kind of risk a gambler takes when they're putting a huge bet down. It's even more, except more so. Right, and I think that the whole gambling culture was a big... I mean, who else but a gambler is going to say, hey, let's go let's go pull some gold out of the, these rivers or some co co copper out of these mountains and uh, find our fortune. It's, it's almost a country, I mean... The country itself is a gamble we're in right now, right? America is, is one of the biggest gambles you can point to. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there's a riverboat gambler mentality to a lot of the decisions that... A lot of the way we think about our own financial future, you know, I, I don't think there's too many people... You know, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, well, maybe it's different now, but people of my age are probably now realizing, wow, you know, I, I'm not rich and I'm probably never going to be. There's probably, there's probably that idea is really hard to let go of. Right. So, well, why have we, why, why have we, why do we get so attached to it in the first place? Right. It's just some kind of false, um, ideal that is sold to us early on. This and it's kind of a passive one, like the jackpot will come one day. Right. I just kind of have to persist. Especially for the kind of people who come west to Los Angeles to, you know, to make it to, to, uh, creatively. They're pulling the slot machine in another way, but they're also, you know, they're making up systems in their own way as well. You never get away from, you never get away from the compulsion to not just see patterns, but create systems. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for people like you and I, and probably a lot of people who listen to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast or, or read it, are people who come from other places, and we meet other people, you know, of similar mind. But I think we also forget what a big deal it is to leave home and to come out here and to uh, say, I don't like how... I don't like the future self I'm imagining for myself in this town or this city or this coast. I'm going to California. I'm going to try something new. I'm going to invent a new me. And there, again, you know, it's something that's denuded by cliche, but what a ballsy thing it is to do when you're broke and you're 18 or you're in debt or you have obligations and it's it's kind of always nice to meet new people who have just arrived out here and see their enthusiasm and, and fear. <laughs> and fear. We get we get desensitized to what the gambles really are. I mean, like like the true habitués of the casino that you saw on the floor, they desensitize themselves to the gambling as well, don't they? They they're gambling all the time, 
but they just forget. They, they, the risk becomes the, the water they swim in, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's funny because uh, I got to interview a fair number of, of jackpot winners, and there were questionnaires that we are always asking our jackpot winners to fill out so that we could you know, use their words and image or their experience for marketing purposes. And you know, whether it's just putting their name and their, how much they want in a newsletter or on an electronic signage in the casino or that kind of thing. Getting to, some people were extraordinarily blasé. Oh, just another day at the casino. Which oh, I always assume meant, wow, they must have lost a lot of money oh, if, if you know, fifteen or twenty-five or forty-five to thousand-dollar jackpot is nothing. Then probably speaks to the amount that they've lost. I've already burnt ninety-nine thousand dollars. Right this year. Yes. But then you would meet people who were just so happy. Out of thrilled and out of, I mean I did meet someone who I can't even remember the amount it was like it was over a quarter of a million dollars and it was the guy had lived his life he was older his kids were out, out of the house out of school had their own lives he had already bought a camper and was gonna go around and he was done he was set that's it he didn't have to worry about it anymore <laughs> but you know uh, even that sounds a little naive because we all know with you know we're just one healthcare disaster away from being bankrupt forever. So it's, it's true, and it strikes me that in, in a lot of these cases, the real story, the story I want to read, is not. It's not the story of the gamble. It's not the story of the win. It's not the suspense between the beginning, the hope, and the win. It's the. It's what comes after. You know, a lot of times I want to read what happens after the jackpot, and it's a story rarely told, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there's. You hear. I think. I think everybody knows that all the horrible things that happen to lottery winners and how often that that works out badly or, or, or people who, um, professional athletes who come from nothing, get extraordinary amounts of money and then end up with nothing a few years later. Yeah, at 27. And you wonder how that could happen. It's like, well, I, I know how it could happen. I mean, right. I, I mean, I mean, I look at the decisions I've made and the things I've done and I know that I, I would. There are a million ways where I would fuck those jackpots <laughs> up royally. Yes, it's easier to do that than anything else. Exactly. It's really not that hard. <laughs> I've been speaking here in Los Angeles, California, the city where we're all making gambles of our own in many different ways with Jim Ruland, author most recently of Forest of Fortune, but of many other things as well. The short story collection Big Lonesome, uh, as well as the columns in uh, Razor Cake and in the San Diego City Beat, and of... Quite a few. Well, let's let's put it this way. He's, I mentioned his parallel career track as co-writer. What's what's coming up? Can you tell us? Yeah, I am a very excited. I, the news hasn't gone public yet, but it will by the time this gets broadcast. And I'm going to be uh, co-writing a book with uh, Keith Morris, uh, who is the the first and one of the founding members and lead singer of Black Flag. And the lead singer of Circle Jerks, and now uh, the band Off, uh, which continues to to tour. He's been doing that for the last three or four years. So uh, um, I'm really ex- excited to work with, uh, you know, one of the most important figures in Southern California punk rock, who's not just sitting on his couch and thinking about the glory days, but is is he's still you know he's still traveling around and he's doing it. Um, and and uh, no lie, I, I really love the music that he's making with Off. I mean, I thought I was a really big fan of his other music, and I've been listening to some of the, you know, going back, and it's, uh, I, I'm finding that my enthusiasm for the new stuff uh, may have, uh, may exceed some of the old. So I, I'm really looking forward to working with him on that project. Seems like the culmination of the years and years and years of punk rock writing, right? Yeah, it, it, I, I, it does. It kind of seems like, uh, you know, when I did the book with uh, Scott Campbell Jr., Deadliest Catch, you know, my nautical background, the time I spent in the Navy, um, kind of made it a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was, because I knew my way around boats. I knew the nomenclature and all that. And this too. I mean, um, I have no idea what it's like to get up on stage and you know and sing to, you know, like the way Keith does. But I 
I can't wait to find out. And uh, it's you know it's a scene that I that I have a lot of interest in and and know a little bit about. And uh, um, for many of the years I lived in L.A., I lived in the South Bay. I lived you know in Manhattan Beach and Playa del Rey and in that part of that culture that um, near Hermosa Beach where where Keith came from and uh, that whole scene that changed you know Southern California punk rock that changed. The, the story of uh, Southern California hardcore is, is really, uh, I think, a really important chapter in the story of rock and roll music. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you, Colin. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org and with me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks. <laughs>